Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, folks. Welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode, drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. I'm going to be honest with you, this one is just so cool. I don't don't think I've ever introduced a podcast by saying that this is cool before, but I'm just going to come out and say it. It's so cool because I'm joined by a pirate historian. I have Dr. Jamie Goodall with me. She's the author of Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the colonial era to the Oyster Wars. She's the co-presenter of the podcast Uncorked History. We've been having a bit of a laugh about um, people and their slightly outdated views on what constitutes appropriate um, kind of wear for a historian. Um, So I anticipate this one being an absolute riot. Jamie, it's brilliant to have you on. I've been following you on Twitter for a while and really enjoying your content. How are you doing? Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm doing pretty well, all things considered with COVID. <laughs> I want to start with some basics for people who might not be familiar with the context of what we're looking at. But, uh, to be honest, if we get through this interview without doing some reference to Johnny Depp and parts of the Caribbean, I will be amazed. But let's start with some pretty basic but important distinctions. And the first of those is pirates and privateers Mm -hmm. because in my head there is a a really important distinction between the two so talk us through how it works okay so essentially pirates and privateers are operating very similarly in that they are both um commerce raiders and they operate primarily on the water there are a lot of nuances but if you put it in the most simplistic terms the only difference between them is that privateers have what are called letters of mark or essentially commissions, which a government official, whether that's the crown or a colonial governor, has granted them 
which gives them the legal authority, according to that government, to do the commerce raiding against enemies during conflict. Um, the other thing that sort of separates the two is your perspective. Of course, to the English, if they've issued a letter of mark, this is a legal uh, avenue for warfare. Um, but according to the Spanish, for example, who are the uh, victims more often than not for the English, uh, you're, a, you're a pirate. So that your perspective kind of determines whether or not you make a distinction between the two. Do you get situations where the tables get turned on the British and then the British are having to deal with privateers and going, this is a nightmare because we've started this idea of, you know, it's okay to be a pirate in certain circumstances and now it's come home to roost? Oh, yeah. Uh, especially with the French. They have lots of problems uh, with conflicts with the French where the French have issued um, letters of mark to their corsairs. So... And what kinds of people are making a living in this way? Is there anything that kind of unifies them, whether they're uh, pirates or, or privateers? Um, well, more often than not, they're involved in some sort of maritime trade. Um, so they have some experience with sailing and, and with uh, the goods coming in and out of ports. So that's kind of a unifier for them. But and the other thing is that more often than not, they're just average men um, and sometimes women. They're, they're not these, you know, grandiose swashbucklers that we know, like Blackbeard. The, the majority of them, we don't know their names because they're so common. Um, so I think that kind of unites them as well, just their, their commonality. Um, but there are a couple of different ways you become a pirate or, or a privateer. Um, the first is that you mutiny against your... Uh, either merchant ship, your captain's there, or if you're in the Royal Navy, you mutiny against the, the officers and turn the ship into a pirate ship. Um, you might be boarded by a pirate crew and then given the opportunity to join the pirate crew, which you might do, or you might be forced to do it. It kind of depends on the pirate crew. Um, and then others, you just find yourself in a financial predicament and you're in port and pirates are looking for crew members and you just sort of join up that way. So is it a lucrative business? Because, you know, we're, we're drawn to these kind of, kind of Disney-esque images of you know, treasure mm -hmm. islands and, and all of this rubbish. But as you say, you know, we're, we're drawn to those figures and not to the individuals whose names we don't know. So is it like a, a sliding scale? So some are managing to make huge sums of money out of it and then others are just kind of scraping an existence. Yeah, it, it is sort of a, a sliding scale there. Um, I mean, it could be quite lucrative for an individual, especially if you think about how little an annual salary was for the average person at the time. Um, most pirates only did one or two ventures before they retired, so to speak. And in one venture, you might get hundreds or even thousands of pounds uh, in terms of the goods you were able to steal and sell. And so that's a, a huge windfall for an individual whose annual salary might be 30 pounds normally. Um, we know that it's profitable for a lot of the pirates because uh, these individuals are buying land and they're purchasing homes or building homes. They are investing in businesses. Um, and a lot of times they have really intimate connections with their communities, uh, which is what sort of afforded a lot of them protection from prosecution. 
So you focus very specifically on the Chesapeake Bay region in your book, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in my head, this isn't, you, you know, you kind of, you Francis Drake, raid the Spanish treasure fleets as they're coming back from the New World type of, I, I don't kind of have that image in my head in the Chesapeake Bay region of that kind of level of um, immediately accessible wealth. So, I mean, is that wrong, I guess, is the first question. Are there, you know, is there a lot of money to be made in this region through commerce raiding? And, you know, how does it work? Okay, so the the average pirate, even in the Caribbean, they're not stealing gold and silver and jewels because uh, early on the Spanish realized they need to fortify their treasure fleets. And so it was very difficult for an individual pirate ship to sort of uh, attack one of those convoys. So uh, more often than not, what they're doing is they're attacking merchant vessels that are carrying everything from textiles and linens to spices from the East Indies, um, silks and porcelains. And they're also very heavily invested in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples. They have no problem viewing black bodies as a commodity. Um, And so the way they're making their money is by taking those items and then selling them typically at auctions or to certain businessmen on the islands or in the colonies uh, who are willing to overlook the illegal nature of how they got those items. And so in the Chesapeake, what you're having is that you have ships that are outbound getting attacked and those ships tend to have tobacco on board uh, because the Chesapeake Bay region was primarily known for its tobacco production. So you might steal that tobacco and then go sell it in the Caribbean. Uh, or you might have some indiscriminate uh, merchants in England who are willing to take the illegally gotten tobacco. And then you have import ships, which are bringing in goods that the colonists want, like the silks and porcelains um, and that sort of thing. And so they're stealing those things coming into the bay and then taking them to merchants along the bay who are willing to then pay them for those goods. And so that's how they're making their money primarily. So what do the American authorities tend to do about it? Because, you know, th- this isn't great for trade, right? To, to right. have pirates proliferating in, in any particular region. And obviously it's something that the Royal Navy ends up sort of trying to stamp out along with kind of trying to, to lean on other nations when it comes to things like the slave trade. So in the Chesapeake Bay region, obviously that's not an area where for a variety of reasons, the British Army should be, emphasis on mm-hmm. should be, um, exerting authority. But the US, you know, is, is still in its early days, particularly in the region that, you know, folks on the Napoleonicist will focus on. So how do they kind of deal with this? So in the colonial era, what's happening is that you have certain governors at certain times who are sort of colluding with the pirates because it's bringing them money because their colonial governor salaries are kind of abysmal. Um, but then you, over time, they realize the detriment to the trade and sort of the overall economy. And you get governors like Virginia's, uh, Francis Nicholson, who sort of works really hard to stamp out piracy. And he writes to the English government and is like, look, you know, you need to send ships out here to help protect us. Um, the only ship that was in the Bay for quite some time was, I believe the HMS Essex prize. And so one ship to patrol the entire bay was just not enough. 
And so the government does send additional ships uh, around uh, probably the early 1700s, 1710s. And that really does help to sort of uh, shift piracy out of the bay. Uh, as, in terms of the sort of Napoleonic era, if we're thinking about the American Revolution, the struggle there is the United States or the Americans are uh, issuing letters of mark to their privateers because they have a fledgling Navy and they're trying to compete with the world's most powerful Navy. But then they're also having to deal with the loyalists among them who are also operating as privateers for the British. And of course the Americans view them as pirates. The British view the American privateers as pirates. And there's sort of complications in terms of jurisdiction and uh, for the Americans, who, who tries these privateers as pirates? Um, you know, earlier they had admiralty courts that sort of took care of that. Um, but as a fledgling nation, uh, who do we, who do we send them to? So, uh, it gets a little, a little hairy during the American revolution. Do you get situations where the letters of Mark are just ignored, you know, and people who are privateers are just tried as pirates and to hell with what should be kind of a, an internationally recognized kind of legal barrier there? It does happen sometimes, although at least during the American Revolution and the War of 1812, England, uh, the British were actually pretty good about recognizing letters of mark as a legitimate uh, thing. And so they would arrest the individuals and hold them prisoner. But really, they sort of kept them as prisoners of war as opposed to um, treating them as pirates, uh, whereas in colonial times, that would have been a little different. Um, for the United States during the American Civil War, for example, though, President Lincoln, uh, with the Confederacy, he issues a proclamation that states, under no uncertain terms, are privateers legitimate. If you are caught, if you're a Confederate privateer who is caught by the Union, uh, you will be tried as a pirate. So the government sort of takes different stances on it, uh, depending on the time period. Um, and with things like the, the American Revolution slash War of Independence, I know people like to, to use different terminology there, and also the War of 1812, you know, do these kind of create opportunities for piracy because you have kind of contests over who controls these waters? Does it kind of generate instability that therefore breeds more piracy or, you know, is, is that just pie in the sky stuff? Oh, absolutely. It breeds a lot of piracy. Um, for many individuals, they believe it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And so if they're not granted a letter of mark, they have no problem still going out and uh, acting uh, as a commerce raider. And then the hope is that maybe retroactively they'll be granted a letter of mark. Um, during times of conflict like that, the government tends to overlook not having a letter of mark. So the Americans, for example, during the Revolutionary War, if a, a ship comes in and they have goods to sell that have been stolen from the British, the government might overlook the fact that they didn't technically operate as a privateer, but they're doing duty to their country and therefore it's kind of acceptable. So they, they have a little leeway with piracy during those kinds of conflicts. What kind of ships are we talking about here? Because we don't have many ships of this era that are 
you know, widely available on display. So you, you talk about a, a warship, inverted commas, from this era, and everybody thinks HMS Victory, right? Portsmouth Historic Dockyards. Something like a hundred plus cannon on that, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that's, you know, state of the art, ship of the line, almost as big as it gets. Okay, so you've got Santa Cima Trinidad, which is a four-decker, but, you know, Victory was a big vessel. But you are talking earlier about how you know, some people can be merchantmen and then turn into pirates. Now, a merchant vessel is not going to be anywhere near as heavily armed as no. the Victory was. So what, what kind of ships are we dealing with in terms of armament size and in terms of how imposing they are? Uh, so pirates and privateers tended to uh, use ships that were smaller and more maneuverable. They still had to have enough uh, space in the hold to keep the cargo that they're stealing, but they need ships that can get into rivers and inlets and islets quite easily, which enables them to escape from ships like men of war uh, or ships of the line. And they tend so they're they tend to be sloops in the colonial era, um, which may have ten to fifteen guns at most. Um, that's kind of pretty high. And then in the revolutionary era into the War of 1812, the Baltimore Clipper becomes a, a favored ship of the pirates and privateers, primarily because they were so difficult to sail. You had to be really skilled at it, which meant that the British who had no experience with them, if they took them, they couldn't use them against the Americans. Um, so the maneuverability, very important. Um, but yeah, they're they're not nearly as heavily armed as, as British naval vessels, for example. Um, they're relying on their ability to um, quickly attack and escape um, rather than have sort of a confrontation. Do you get people who've been involved in piracy then being recruited into the Navy because they have that seafaring experience they have a bit of combat experience, perhaps not necessarily the discipline, although that's a separate question that I want to come mm -hmm. on to in a second. Um, do you see people kind of transitioning in and out uh, across different careers? Yeah, um, some pirates. Uh, so sometimes you had pirates who were pirate hunters turned pirate like William Kidd. Um, but sometimes you had pirates who would then turn around and work for the government. Um, Sir Henry Morgan, for example, was one of those who you know, operated as a pirate for quite some time. And then he turned around and became a pirate hunter. And sometimes that meant going to work for the Royal Navy um, because they did have that experience and it enabled them to deal with uh, pirate crews and pirate ships in a way that maybe the Royal Navy officers and traditional crew members might not have. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let me just kind of talk about 
another element of your book for a second before we start dwelling into some of the kind of tropes surrounding mm -hmm. piracy and, and you know, the, the Disneyfication, if you like, <laughs> of, of the whole thing. So you cover everything in your, I mean, it's an incredible time period that you were covering. I had to look <laughs> up when the Oyster Wars ended, but I mean, these the Oyster Wars start in the 1880s and end in the 1950s. So yeah. you cover a lot of change. I guess the first question is, how much do you see changing in terms of the nature of piracy across the course of your work? But then also I'm interested in kind of the longer term impacts mm -hmm. of things like the Royal Navy stepping in and changes in the way in which commerce works. So in terms of changes, there's not a lot of changes in terms of how the pirates operate. Um, they, they follow a pretty standard operating procedure. Um, and that's just because, again, they have to have the ability to get in and out um, not have a confrontation. Um, but the sort of defining of piracy shifts over time. And for example, in the oyster wars, uh, which like you said, happened between the 1880s and the 1950s, um, you're, you're, they're not pirates in a traditional sense in terms of commerce rating. What they are is either they're new Englanders who are poaching oysters from the Chesapeake Bay um, because the law stated you could ha only harvest oysters if you were a state resident. Um, the other is if you were a dredger as opposed to a tonger, because dredgers were much more disruptive to the oyster beds and they depleted them, which left the government concerned about destruction of the oyster beds. Uh, and given that it was a multi-million dollar industry for their economy, they, they really needed the oysters. So um, that's how you become an oyster pirate. Um, so a, a little bit different than say the pirates of the colonial era who are attacking merchant ships. Um, in terms of long-term impact, uh, I think you can kind of look to the laws that the Americans established regarding piracy. Uh, they, they take a lot of their notes from the, the British laws regarding piracy and the ways in which the US uh, naval forces dealt with piracy, um, very similar to how the British had done. So they take a lot of notes from, from their predecessors. Okay, we keep mentioning it, the, the Disneyfication and all of the tropes <laughs> that's kind of surround this. So, so let's dive in. Um, and I started thinking about this when I was looking at your work um, out, outside of what's in the, the book on the Chesapeake Bay, because you've looked at taverns in the West Indies, haven't you? Mm -hmm. And yes. It doesn't matter which pirate film you watch, it's almost a given that at some point said protagonist will go into a bar, it will be a scene of debauchery, somebody will get into a fight, there's usually a couple of people kind of canoodling in a corner somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> These are all, and you can take it from one film and transplant it straight into the second and it's universal. Now your work is really different because you talk about how these taverns are actually places of exchange of knowledge, right? Yes. Um, so of course there were pirates who entered taverns for the sole purpose of getting, you know, shithoused and um, enjoying the company of ladies and, and getting into fights. But a lot of pirates use taverns in terms of uh, knowledge exchange in the sense that it's a space where they can collude with governors and with merchants because these spaces tend to be cross-class 
Um, it's not unusual to see a variety of classes in that space. Um, so they don't stand out uh, during their sort of nefarious work. Um, it's also a place where pirates can get information. They can listen in on conversations or they can threaten people for information uh, about ships that are coming in and out of port and when they're going to arrive, you know, what's on board that ship, how many men the ship has, how heavily armed it is. Um, and that information is really useful to them in terms of deciding which ships to attack and when. Um, and they also get information about which merchants or which businesses are friendly uh, that will enable them to sell their, their stolen loot. So um, taverns are pretty important commercial spaces for them. Why do we have that temptation then? And this is, this is kind of a bigger question that I want to tap into because we have this temptation to kind of position taverns as scenes of debauchery. Mm -hmm. When you get to piracy, you've got this, I, I think it's fair to say kind of a romanticization mm -hmm. of piracy. Um, obviously, nobody's pretending that the exploits of Captain Jack Sparrow are anything other than the fabric or, of um, the, the folks who produced the series. But why do we kind of seize on these tropes and want to kind of embrace them so much? I think it's because people tend to look at pirates as sort of Robin Hood-esque figures. Um, the idea that they, and, and it starts as early as 1724 with Captain Charles Johnson's general history of pirates. He sort of glamorizes them for the contemporaries. And so people who might not know much about pirates otherwise are reading his book. It was a bestseller and they're like getting all this information about exciting adventures and, and, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then of course, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island just sort of perpetuates that, introduces us to some myths that become the, the standard tropes like um, eye patches and peg legs and that sort of thing. Um, and then of course the 1950s film version gives us uh, how pirates talk, which uh, is the result of, uh, I believe it's Robert Newton who, uh, use his West, West Country accent and really exaggerated it to give himself a, a sort of pirate accent. And he then used it when he played Blackbeard and it sort of just became a thing. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the historiography of piracy, you get the works like uh, Marcus Redeker's work, which really promotes pirates as these floating democracies or these egalitarian communities. And I think this is where that Robin Hood-esque notion comes from, the idea that they're sticking it to the man and they're um, taking these goods and by selling it at these ports, they're uh, enabling the local inhabitants to profit, even if the merchants are suffering. Um, but that historiography has been changing. Uh, we still know that there were some pirates that did operate as floating democracies. They had pirate codes, which included everything from uh, equal shares of the loot to voting on captains and voting on which ships to attack and where to sail. But there were plenty of pirates who were absolutely not democratic in any way, shape or form. Um, I mean, you could look to Blackbeard as a prime example. He was a captain that kind of ruled with an iron fist. Um, but by virtue of participation in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples, that's wholly undemocratic. And so 
and kind of goes against that Robin Hood notion. Um, and then, you know, I think that just this idea of adventure, people love the idea of adventure and getting to do something that you normally wouldn't be able to do. And that sort of leads to a lot of romanticization as well. So if we're going to be slightly mean and step on a, a few people's kind of perceptions and explode a few uh, myths, I'm guessing nobody ever said something daft like shiver me timbers. That was not an attempt at a pirate accent, by the way. <laughs> um, so there's debate about whether shiver me timbers was a, a phrase used by sailors. Uh, so that would include pirates. Um, allegedly, it had to do with uh, when cannon would cannonballs would strike the ship and the uh, masts would shake. But it's debated um, whether or not that's an actual phrase. But yeah, a lot of the phrases like avast me hearties and yo-ho and that sort of thing, like probably didn't say that. They would have just spoken like any normal sailor would have. A lot of cursing, I'm sure. Um, there's also a lot of mixed languages happening on board pirate ships because you had a lot of multinational crews. And so it wasn't just English. You might have French being spoken on board. You might have Dutch. Uh, sometimes you had Spanish because uh, some members of the Spanish empire sort of uh, mutinied and, and joined with the pirates. So um, very interesting in terms of the ways in which they might speak. And again, on the kind of the, the myth busting uh, sort of focus, walking the plank from, I mean, I, I've got to bear in mind, I last read a, a book on piracy when I was quite small, but I think I remember reading that there was one recorded instance of that ever happening. Is, is, that, is it even less than that? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that it's not a common thing. Oh, it definitely was not a common thing. I mean, more often than not, pirates are either going to torture you um, and that's to get information. So having you walk the plank is not really so much torture um, as it is a means of killing you. Uh, and if they wanted to kill you, they'd just shoot you or stab you. Um, that's easier. Uh, they did have one favored method of sort of torture slash death, and that was keel hauling, which was where they tied you up with rope, tossed you overboard, and basically let the ocean drag you along the bottom of the ship with all its barnacles and sharp pointy things that would essentially you would either die by drowning or you would die because of blood loss because you'd be cut up so severely so um when you think about the the methods of torture um and the the uh overall level of brutality um pirates don't look quite so romantic <laughs> absolutely and um, the other thing i want to talk about is the discipline and you touched on this already when you were talking about to what extent were these uh, pirate ships kind of democratic institutions we have this perception of you know they're all drunk most <laughs> of the time and and you know there's there's no discipline but there's a there's a tension there because quite obviously in order to be able to be successful you need to be able to maneuver a ship you need to be able mm -hmm. to intimidate your opponent that means that you need to be able to organize yourself effectively as a fighting force. So where's the reality there? Because the two ideas don't really seem to match up. Right, um, I, I think you're right. You needed that strong organization in order to be effective as a pirate. And so I think there was actually a lot more discipline on board than we tend to envision. 
Um, most of the crew members had a specific job that they were tasked with doing and they did it without complaint. Mostly, um, some people might not have been as happy with their tasks as others. Um, and a lot of times if they have a code, they're voting on who gets what position and, and what tasks. So, um, definitely a lot more organized than you would think. And in some cases it's an organized chaos, but organized nonetheless. Um, now it is true that they are drinking pretty heavily on board, um, but that was also true of sailors. I mean, the Royal Navy gave out whiskey rations, right? Like, um, so drinking alcohol was better than drinking the water. And so, uh, and grog is just water mixed with whatever spirit they have available. Um, so they are drinking, but they're drinking responsibly, I guess. They're, they're not getting too drunk that they can't perform their tasks. This is perhaps an unfair question because, and I say this with a lot of love to the, the parts of the Caribbean franchise, but you know what it's like as a historian, everybody's like this. I have this with the Waterloo film. I have it with various other um, war films. When you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, to what extent do you cringe? And to what extent do you look at it and go, you know what, somebody's done just a tiny bit of research. You know, those bits work. As far as the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise, I would say not a lot of research went into that. Um, you know, they got Tortuga right. So I guess there's something. Um, and the fact that pirates, some pirates had codes. So um, Barbosa's crew had the code with parlay and all that. Um, I'm able to um, sort of extract myself from my historical brain when I'm watching those kinds of things and able to enjoy them for what they are, which is a gift. I, I know so many historians who just, they can't separate the two, the, the entertainment from the history. Um, I would say if anybody wanted something that was equally entertaining and somewhat historically accurate with respect to pirates, black sails is probably your best bet. Um, a lot more research went into black sails in terms of trying to make sure there's at least some historical accuracy there. And I think they do a good job of portraying the pirates as sort of the ruthless, brutal individuals that they were, but also as the complex individuals that they were. So there you go, folks. There's a, a top tip there. Um, I'm definitely going to go away and have a, a little watch. There's something else that's been um, it's kind of sitting at the back of my mind, which is that you mentioned earlier that these these pirates weren't exclusively men. You did have women. Um, and I remember mm -hmm. reading certainly a couple of examples as a child about women who, who managed to be very successful. But it is certainly from, from somebody who hasn't researched this and if you like an outsider looking in it looks like a very male dominated environment in the same way that a lot of the the maritime world was a male dominated environment during this period so how do women manage to work themselves into positions where they are leading pirate crews and and what are their experiences and their stories it's difficult to find examples of women as pirates just because of one, the lack of documentation uh, when it comes to pirates. Um, so that's true of like trying to find out who these average men were. We just don't have the documentation for it. The other issue is that because women in the Western world are considered bad luck on ships, uh, 
any woman who wanted to become a pirate would have to disguise themselves as a man. So even if we did have records of somebody, it would be a male name and we wouldn't know necessarily if it was a woman who was engaged in piracy. Um, the exceptions, of course, being Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed. There's debate about whether or not they had disguised themselves as men or not, um, especially because uh, some descriptions of them and their fighting says that they wore loose shirts, which would bare their breasts. So clearly they were women. So it's kind of up in the air whether or not they, they followed that protocol of disguising themselves. Um, and we really only know about them because they got caught, right? Um, and we have the trial transcripts for them. Um, and Ching Shi in, in the East, very famous, uh, incredibly successful pirate, but again, very rare. Um, so it's unfortunate that we don't have more evidence for women as pirates, but I would wager that there were more than we realize. Jamie, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm going to wrap this up with that really generic podcast, <laughs> a question that I, I hate when I hear it, but I know people are going to want to know more about your work. Um, because I, I genuinely don't know where you go once you've done pirates and pubs. <laughs> um, which is effectively what we've been talking about tonight, right? So, I mean, it, it feels like you've reached the pinnacle already. What do you do as a project beyond this? What are you working on now? Um, I'm sticking with pirates uh, and, and alcohol and, and all the fun things. Um, I have a chapter coming out in a, a book about uh, global alcohol consumption uh, across time and space. And then uh, in terms of what I'm working on exclusively, I have uh, a book coming out next year uh, about Pirates of the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, title is still pending, but basically it focuses on um, pirates and their relationships with governors and inhabitants of New York. Uh, but it also includes Pennsylvania, the Jerseys, uh, and Delaware, and essentially the connections between the Mid-Atlantic and pirates with the Indian Ocean and Madagascar, because that's sort of um, where we're getting shifts out of the Atlantic into that world. So that's coming out next year. And then the year after that, I have a contract to work on a book, which will be sort of a, a cross between a biography of Black Sam Bellamy and uh, an examination of pirates of New England, specifically Massachusetts. Blimey, you are busy, aren't you? Um, I can't <laughs> say I'm surprised. And folks can follow you on Twitter, can't they? Yes. yes. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, so it's La Historienne, which is just L underscore H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E-N-N-E. -N -N -E. Brilliant. Um, and folks, bear in mind that Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the colonial era to the Oyster Wars is out already. Was it Pen and Sword that did that one? No, uh, History Press, actually. History Press. Okay, so you can find that online now. Go and buy it. It's a brilliant read. And as we said at the start, you're also co-presenter of Uncorked History. I've had a little yes. listen. Great fun. Um, folks are definitely going to enjoy that. Not that I probably should be advertising other podcasting products in, in the <laughs> process of my work, but hey, I've just gone and done it. So uh, there we go. Jamie, thank you ever so much. This has been a riot. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. Before you go, do me a favour. Like, subscribe, share and leave a review. It'll cost a couple of seconds of your time, but it makes a huge difference to the algorithms which push this podcast out around the world. 
If you're interested in becoming a supporter, you've heard my spiel on this often enough in previous episodes, but essentially everything gets reinvested into growing the content from tech upgrades to new kit aimed at bringing you more variety to the show. There are perks for regular supporters. Check out the Patreon link for more on that. But if that's not for you and you want to leave a one-off tip, you can do that via Ko-fi. Each hour of podcasting has anything from four to six hours of time poured into it, so your support in whatever form it takes, financial or digital, is hugely appreciated. A big thank you, as ever, to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb and Matt Bone, and my Mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Colson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. Join me in a few days when Naval Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.